welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm joined today by our adjunct fellow Stephanie Martin and guest Ursula Edgington. Ursula is an author and researcher in education and she's been looking into the effects of technology on education. Now this is pretty timely because I'm actually just writing a report on artificial intelligence in education so it should be a good conversation today. So welcome Steph and welcome Ursula. Thanks Michael, good to be here. Now maybe a good place to start is how you got to thinking about the impacts of technology in education. I guess we can think of how to define technology. You know, arguably, I would say literacy is even a technology because it's not natural to humans to read and write. So how, how do you think about what technology is and, and how did you get into thinking about its its association with education? Yeah, I mean, I'm very interested in hearing Stephanie's perspectives as, as well as this because from my perspective, really, it's probably began a little while ago when I witnessed the teacher education here in New Zealand for the first time. And there was a disconnect really between what was being taught to the teacher, the beginning teachers and the realities of the classroom. And the devices in the classroom were always kind of framed as a disruptor. You know, they were an inconvenience. It was a classroom management issue. And if the, the students were having their learning interrupted, it was because of the, you know, weakness of the teacher's skills rather than rather than the, the technology fact. itself. Yeah. 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 I mean the the whole concept of these devices is that they are addictive and yet they're not framed that way. It, it's kind of we're looking at the symptoms, not the cause, which I think we've mentioned previously, it's it's a, a common problem especially in um, New Zealand culture, is to look at those superficial things and try and sweep the, the difficult conversations under the rug. So that, that was the thing that started me off on this track, really. And of course, the, the recent lockdowns that have forced the closure of lots of institutions in lots of sectors, forced the students to be constantly virtually using their devices, whether they like it or not, Yes. If, assuming, that, assuming they've got them. Has you know has exacerbated the existing problems and the and the lack of awareness. So yeah, that's, I, that's my starting point really. I'll bring Steph in in a minute to to reflect on her experience of teacher education. Of course, uh, Steph and I have just completed a report on teacher education. We d we didn't really delve into the technology question in in that report. But I I, I was still at the university when the lockdowns were occurring, and and in fact. A period thereafter where the, where the university was actually more or less encouraging people to engage online and it resulted in a lot of students just being absent even online from the from the courses the, about a third of the students were just not showing at all and then we were putting lectures online in recorded form and the data were showing us that most of the students who didn't attend in person even when they optionally could we're not even engaging with those online tools. So there's, there's definite evidence that it's caused a disruption to, to many young people's educational experience. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's interesting that you use the word engagement because that was what was coming to mind as you were saying that is that there was a widespread disengagement through that period, I'd say, right? Yeah. Did, did you notice that, Steph, when you were teaching at that time? during the lockdowns, how did you handle that as a classroom teacher? Well, it was a great rushed scramble, right, to yeah. try and 
translate a classroom into an online setting. I'd say that I was quite fortunate being in a school that we were already sort of moving in a direction towards things like Google Classroom anyway. And I say fortunate in the sense of we picked up the pace towards the momentum like shift that we were already making anyway. So it wasn't dramatically something that we'd just not had any engagement with at all. So it wasn't completely fresh. And we were lucky that we had a community that generally had devices at home and we were able to supply, the school supplied them for kids who didn't. We were quite fortunate, I would say, to actually have had access to the technology to allow our students to engage in the first place. And I was part of a really great team and we just worked together through it. I mean, it was a challenging time, right? But I think really we, we fared quite well. I think there were... I mean, there were other communities that just didn't have access to a device, right, yeah. at home. So immediately, if all of educate, if all of your schooling was happening through technology and you didn't have access to that technology, you didn't have access to your schooling, essentially, yeah. right? Mm. And that was the case for so many kids during that time. Mm. Yeah. And it wasn't just schools either. You know, I, at the time, I was a postgrad student at the University of Auckland. And some of my lecturers hadn't even thought about providing books that were available online, you know, ebooks or whatever, as an alternative to their reading list. I mean, I, I couldn't get my head around it at the time because, you know, 10 years ago, that was the kind of conversation that I was having as a lecturer at my institution. You know, why aren't these resources available online? Why aren't you providing, you know, we've got a subscription to Moodle or Blackboard or whatever. Why aren't we using the facilities of those kinds of platforms so that when students do miss lectures, then the resources are there and the recording is there, etc. So, you know, things are very slow to change, aren't they, in New Zealand? And uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of students, you know, the serious implications are, are perhaps not not immediately obvious to a lot of people, yeah. sadly. So, so, I mean, obviously the lockdowns were a time at which technology and education was important to keep people involved. And as Steph has pointed out, the effects of it were unequal depending on what kind of access young people had to devices that allowed them to undertake education online. But I wonder if, you know, in normal times, the involvement of all of this technology is actually desirable. And I know you'll have some thoughts about this, Ursula, because you've written about it in, in your Substack, but the, certainly the idea of recording lectures before the lockdowns was mooted at, at the university where I was working. And a lot of us in, uh, academics, including me, re resisted it on the grounds that if we recorded the lectures, then students wouldn't turn up. And we, we actually yeah. saw the, the human <laughs> yeah. relationship as a pretty important yeah. part of their education. So how I should... remember that same conversation just as a side note, and I was very much of the same opinion. Right. Yeah. So how should we be negotiating this in your view, Ursula? What is the, the right balance between using technology to support education and allowing it to take over in a way that's unhealthy? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Personally, I think that because the student-teacher relationship has been eroded so severely over recent years, and that's not just about the institutions, that's a global commercialization of international issues of education so it you know if lectures and seminars were interesting 
students would want to be there because at the end of the day, you're not going to learn anything unless you're genuinely engaged and enjoying what you're learning. So really, you know, again, let's just go down and look at the grassroots of the problem. If the students aren't physically there, then is it because they literally don't, they can't be bothered, they don't see a value in their time there? Or is it for other reasons? Now, I know that there are students, I've seen past courses that I've presented, where the student may or may not be physically present. And then I go to look at what they've looked at online, and they have, and I can see that they've looked repeatedly at whatever resource videos or whatever online like not just once Mm -hmm. you know five six seven times we know everybody learns in a different way and and if it's a complex subject and maybe they haven't done the reading properly or they have to return to the reading and go back and look at the lecture again that's not necessarily a, a negative the problem there's kind of a disconnect isn't there between what the old university, if we're going to look at the university um, lecture system, looks like in an old framework and what modern students are actually looking for today. And that is, you know, as we're going to talk about in a minute, partly driven by this, I want the next dopamine hit. You know, I right. want I want some interaction. I want some kind of, I don't want to just sit, sit there and be this placid kind of in a didactic lecture theatre or classroom. You know, people don't have those kinds of expectations anymore things have things have changed so they do seem to have changed i guess we could discuss whether that's a good thing or not and and if it isn't what we could be doing with younger children so that they can perhaps maintain the concentration span to be able to listen to a lecture uh, and in fact engage in discussion because I think many academics now have moved beyond the idea of just talking for or an hour maybe some of them haven't but certainly lectures can be much more informal than perhaps they used to be and and certainly as a lecturer I would always value interaction and questions and comments from the students But to come back to the question of where this kind of technological addiction began, what what are we doing in our schools that is leading to perhaps people, young people, being overly attracted to the idea of learning through devices rather than from human beings? Yeah. Well, that's what they're designed to be, isn't it? You know, the actual devices are devices designed to be an addictive. I mean, this game, it's, it's about the gamification of learning, isn't it? It's commercialization of learning has meant that the the methods that are normally employed by gamification experts along with potentially profit making harvesting of that psychological or personal data has led to a whole different kind of interaction and a and a relationship it's an unbalanced you know it's there's a there's an exploitation i suppose there in the in the relationship that wasn't there before so we have seen things like Google Classroom and and other platforms being introduced in schools. Steph mentioned that her school adopted Google Classroom. And these are obviously marketed by tech companies as being a good way to organise education. What's been your experience of using it, Steph? Do you, do you think it has been beneficial or what, what are its effects on children's learning? Well, I... Th- <laughs> I think there will be multiple perspectives on that. My only real sustained time spent engaging with it was through COVID. And at that point in time, I would say it was really valuable because it enabled us to sort of establish some sort of a virtual classroom and have a 
kind of central place for us to keep all our resources and communication and things like that. So it was really useful through that time. As to how that works now, I mean, like my situation is quite different. I'm not in the same school. I'm not doing the same thing. So I'm not using it anymore. It's, yeah, not part of my world anymore. I mean, we've got to remember that Google Classrooms wasn't ever designed to be a classroom. It was never designed with students and teachers in mind. It was just a yeah a, a commercial decision that Google made that they saw a, a gap that they could potentially exploit for, for profit. And, and my personal experience with it has been, like you say, Steph, it's been useful in certain instances, but generally speaking, it's down to the skills of the teacher in uploading stuff or interacting in a certain way and the reliability of people's you know, devices and, and connections, which, as we know, isn't always great in New Zealand. Yeah. I mean, a question a question that I kind of think about now is there, there are situations out there where people are still using Google Classroom, even though they've gone back into the classroom, right? So they're sort of operating in a physical classroom as well as in a digital classroom sort of at the same time. And like having assignments set through Google Classroom, having like workshop slides being put through Google Classroom and things like that. And that is sort of happening out there. And I do wonder what the implications of that are and what that really means for the kind of idea of the classroom moving forward, you know. As a physical space as opposed to a virtual space, is that what you mean? Yeah, but also the fact that they're sort of engaged with both at the same time. So they'll be sitting in a physical class with physical students around them, connected into Google Classroom, doing something that's been created and set by a teacher in Google Classroom, when that teacher's also in the room with them, but they're not necessarily engaging with them. And they're they're working on tablets and things, are they, with these? Mm. Yeah. yeah, on devices. So yeah, Chromebooks or iPads. It just, it seems to me like, I wonder what the implications of that are. I wonder where that's going to go <laughs> when we're yeah. trying to sort of operate in both real and virtual classrooms simultaneously. Yeah, well, this links on to what Michael's talking about in terms of artificial intelligence, because one thing I've written about recently is the fact that You know, we've got these, you know, massive online, whatever they call them, classrooms, the MOOCs, where they could quite easily be virtual students or or even virtual teachers playing a role that seemed to be real to the to the classroom, to the students in that classroom, but aren't actually physical people in (laughs) in the real sense, you know, with a with a particular agenda in mind. So yeah, you're right. It's a very bizarre environment and it's very ambiguous space for the students to be in and and you know potentially dangerous I think. Well one of the things that I've been thinking about in relation to artificial intelligence but but it actually goes for a great deal of technology including the use of tablets and indeed going back a few decades to the introduction of calculators into, into education is the way in which A technology that apparently makes redundant a certain kind of learning can undermine cognitive development. So, I mean, for example, with the tablets, uh, Helen Walls, Dr. Helen Walls, who's somebody both Steph and I have worked with, she's a consultant who works on writing, especially she's very keen on children learning handwriting. She's pointed out that when children learn to handwrite, it forms connections in the brain between the language and motor areas that are not formed by using a tablet. And the reason for that is that they, when you physically form a letter, there's a motor pattern that you form with your, your hand to form, whereas when you're 
tapping on a keyboard or a tablet, it's all the same. You're just pressing a button in each case. So it, it doesn't have the same effect in terms of brain development. She's also talked about studies that show that, that learning to handwrite rather than using a tablet actually aids the acquisition of reading. So that's one example of the way in which a technology that looks useful and looks as though it makes things easier can actually cause, in some sense, yeah. damage to, to the educational progress of children. Yeah, definitely. And there's also um, connected to that, Michael, is the issue of memory recall. So when you're, there's been lots of research, I'm sure you're aware of, that if you're reading something from a screen, it's less likely to be recalled than if you're reading it physically and, yeah. you know, in a book or whatever. And so, and even now I can, you know, look at my bookshelf and look at the cover of the book and remember what's in that book. Whereas, you know, to, to make the same kind of connections to online articles is extremely difficult. So yeah, there's a, there's a whole world opening up of people who are just learning online yeah, and the, the consequences for their future cognitive skills, definitely. Just to be devil's advocate on that one for a minute. I, I mean, if we think about that idea of the way in which reading from screen versus reading from the page affects the extent to which we remember what we've read, mm. we could go back to the invention of literacy as, as having caused something similar. If you look at people in oral cultures where, where they don't have literacy, they have these incredible memories for, for history and stories that yeah. we no longer need to have because it's all written down. Now, so there's a two-edged sword there, isn't there? On, on the one hand, something like literacy, which is now an old technology, several thousand years old in some cultures at least, there's an extent to which that had an effect on our cognition that doesn't seem to have been good for our our memories. And yet, it also gives us this immensely powerful access to knowledge from past generations in a way that couldn't possibly be recorded in oral history at, at that volume. I would argue that certain things are enabled by the existence of literacy that, that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Complex yeah, mathematics, I, for example. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely on that. I know where you're going with it. I'm not entirely in agreement because, of course, the power of stories. And one thing that we are missing from modern society is the ability to just sit and talk, you know, and, and tell each other those stories yeah. about, you know, whether they're mythological or, or whatever. So in that way, our history was passed down from previous generations, some of which obviously has been lost. I think it was Neil Oliver that was talking the other day about Stonehenge. At what point... Did the famous, you know, UK standing stones in Stonehenge, at what point did we forget why they were put there <laughs> at great expense and energy, etc.? Because nobody really knows. I mean, we can guess, yeah. but nobody really knows why they're there. And and so the historical storytelling, Christians would argue the same about some of the, sto the Bible stories, is a way of getting across certain certain messages across history. Oh look, I completely um, agree with that, and I, and I think that the the oral history of stories is is a wonderful thing. I mean, I, I guess with respect to Stonehenge and the like, we could look to successive waves of invasion of England, you know, by Romans and then Anglo Saxons and then Normans, and and so perhaps these things get buried under layers of history. But yeah. but I know what you're talking about, and again, yeah. I think that oral cultures do have this incredible 
store of stories that they're able to to bring out and the interesting thing is that they morph and change over time and and breed variants and so on whereas perhaps a literate culture tends to solidify things more but i guess my point is that benefits come with that too so if we look yeah. at the if we look at the present moment when technology is just expanding massively we could say there will be some benefits from that but we need to watch out for the things that might be lost if we're not careful yeah so can yeah. i pick up the question there please do <laughs> something that was just um sort of floating for me in the background while you were both talking is the role of attention spans in all of this right and our capacity to listen because part of that storytelling culture right and part of what enabled the sort of sages who would learn these stories to be able to recall all of that was that they paid very close attention to listening to the stories and learning them from the people who came before. So it was an enormous task in terms of attention and in terms of listening. So I wonder how the developments in technology are affecting both of those things. I think you wrote a bit about this in your your substack recently, Ursula. <laughs> Remind me. Well, if we have these technologies, what's the effect on the on the the attention span? I mean, if your phone is interrupting you when you when you're busy concentrating on something else, and and yeah. that happens persistently. Yes, that's right. And not only that, I mean, it's not just about the notifications and the feeling that you know that little red mark is there, and you've got to address whatever it is that is the something new, as Catherine Price calls it. You know, oh, the something new. There's also been research before COVID, and there's probably been some since, about the fact just the physical presence of your phone, even without it interacting with you, has a drain on your cognitive ability. It's its presence, you know, in your in your bag or in your back pocket or whatever. Why, why so, do you think that would be? Well, personally, I think it is more than a habit. I think it is an addiction. And I think, you know, if, it's a bit like, depending on what your experience is with, uh, with having an addiction, you know, whether it's a, a box of chocolates in the pantry or a, a large bottle of whiskey in the, you know, in the drinks cabinet, its presence, if you're an addict, will have an impact on your ability to concentrate. I see. So you, um, it, it's like a constant distraction. If you're if you're a recovering alcoholic and you know there's a bottle of whiskey in the cupboard, then that becomes something yeah. that occupies your your mind a lot. Whereas if if it's just not there, then you're more likely to be able to. Yeah, of... and th- and this is the this is the crux of the problem is that in the as far as I'm aware, there's very little recognition or or, or uh, acknowledgement in these new discussions about let's get phones out of schools completely let's get them out of the lecture halls or whatever about the actual cognitive effect that that has i mean if a student for instance and steph i'll be interested in your views on this if a student is literally not allowed their device during school what happens to that child when they get home are they immediately seeking out that device because they need it or is uh, over the you know the school week is their addiction to their device diminished um you know where is the the proper research in that area as far as i'm aware it's it's not discussed openly in in these recent announcements about getting rid of getting rid of devices from schools because as i say it's it's sort of wrapped up in this classroom management issue you know it's a weakness of it's seen as a weakness of the teacher if if the the child has a or the student has a device that 
perhaps, you know, shouldn't be there. It is really something that we need to do a lot more looking into, isn't it? And you're, yeah. I think you're right that it's not quite as simple as just walking in and <laughs> confiscating all the phones and problems solved. Hey, it's a bit more complicated yeah. than that. Yeah, it's, absolutely. And like you say, if it's actually an addiction and we're <laughs> just removing yeah. that from their hands, yeah. then what are the effects of that going to be? I think for me, because I teach at primary level, it's much less of a, yeah. like hardly any, students have phones in the first place and where they do they're not the concept of them being in the classroom just isn't even there so I'm yeah. quite fortunate but I, I know that in high schools it's a real problem yeah and I worry about the role modeling you know those those kids at primary school might not be physically on their phones but if they go home and their parents are staring at their phones mm. you know what message is that sending for the for their future interaction with their students and their parents and their you know, siblings or whatever. So, so let, let's actually talk about this notion that these devices cause addiction um, and perhaps, you know, not on everybody, but but some people are... are what, what do you mean when you, you're talking about an, an addiction to a, a device? What What's the difference between being addicted to it and, and just using it? Yeah, this is a really important question. So... Catherine Price has written a book about something like it's called something like how to break up with your phone. And it starts with an assessment, a personal assessment that you have to be honest with yourself and use a tracking, you know, app if you need to actually work out what you're using your phone for, how long are you using it each day, you know, which apps are you looking at and why and trying to distinguish actually what the relationship is, is is your phone a tool or are you becoming a tool of your phone? Because that that is what the companies, you know, the designers of these apps, that's what they're hoping to do. You're you're their tool. They're harvesting certain information from you yes, for I've, a profit. I've, I've heard it said that when it comes to social media, you're you're not the customer but the product. You're, yeah, that's um, right. You're the, yeah, source, and, you're the source of the data that the companies are actually after, which is what they yeah. actually make their money out of. That's right. And th and these comes back to that discussion about the MOOCs. You know, a lot of them are offered for free, so-called free courses online, which is great. You know, sign up and, and go through a, you know, your, I don't know, environmental degree or whatever it is. And, you, it, and you'll only have to pay if you want a certificate. Oh, wonderful. But what are you doing? If you look at the terms and conditions of those online learning platforms, they're basically using whatever data they want to, you know, for very ambiguous reasons. So, yeah, it's an exploitation, which which needs to be addressed. Right. And and do you think the education system has been naive in its adoption of, of technology? I mean, it certainly is bright and shiny and, and it, it's attractive to, to young people to use a, a new yeah. device and so on. So you can see why... Yeah the schools or some schools have moved towards it as a, as a way of conducting the classroom. But would you say yeah. that that's, that's been naive and they haven't had their eyes open to the fact that perhaps it's a, a marketing exercise by the tech companies? Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's a very complex issue, as you know, and, you know, we could, we could talk for hours about this, but the public-private partnerships is, you know, one of the root causes of this problem where if education hasn't been funded correctly over many years, then of course it makes sense to bring in the private commercial companies who appear to be solutions-based. But of course, there's always a trade-off. And if that trade-off is the privacy of their students or other kinds of information, then, you know, that that's a price that the institutions have been willing to, to give up. Yeah. I, I, I might 
um, reflect that it may depend on the nature of the company. I, I mean, if, if you've got a company whose primary objective is to deliver education, then they're much more likely to have thought through the issues with technology and other things and actually be focused on delivering good education. But if the, if the company is actually involved in marketing technology, then, then yeah. education is just a market for that. And that's where I think the, the problems can arise. And, and you know, I, I mean, companies exist in part to, to make money. That's what, that's what they do. And that, that's how uh, we get innovation and so on. So, so we don't want to entirely throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I, I do worry that especially where technology is concerned, uh, that the technology companies often don't understand the effects of technology on the development of cognition so that if for example i mean we could go back to the calculator debate of the 1980s when handheld calculators became widely available for the first time and there was a big debate amongst educators about whether they should be adopted because now arithmetic is redundant why why would young people need to learn to add and subtract and multiply and divide when the calculator can do it flawlessly straight away and the answer to that turns out to be because if they don't then they're never going to have the cognitive resources to take on high, higher mathematics or, or even the kind of numeracy that you need to operate in everyday life and you know you won't understand what a percentage is or be able to calculate interest on your mortgage and and so on if you don't understand yeah. the, those those basic things so yeah. that's what I'm concerned about mostly with the adoption of technology. Not not the technology per se, which can have great uses, but just its management in, in terms of the education process and, and what we risk if we don't know about cognitive development enough when we, when we implement it. Yeah, and I think the you, you make a good point about, you know, the, the different companies that are involved in the in the learning platforms but actually if you look closely at some of those learning platforms and obviously google classrooms is a is a major one you'll find that they actually do have common stakeholders and shareholders and so actually their funding does come from a very limited amount of corporate companies who all share the same you know exploitative data harvesting kind of uh, you know intentions so, and I don't think you can escape that, you know, because that that is where the money is. And education, it has, as I say, always been underfunded, and so it kind of makes sense for people to to compromise on those values. And and that's why, you know, I'm a believer that education needs to have a total refresh and a and a rethink and a revolution in some ways, and escape these commercial interests and and become more students student focused again and reclaim that relationship between teacher and student yes i, I think i i would like to see a restoration of the, of the kind of human relationship in the classroom too mm. so it's been terrific to talk to you ursula today and uh as you say we could go on for hours but we'd better not we could. yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Tip of the iceberg. But, but Tip we'll, of the iceberg. But, but we'll keep in touch, and and I'd encourage everybody to have a read of your blog uh, or your Substack, which, which has got some great material on it. And thanks for joining us, and, and thank you, Steph, as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Ursula. It was a wonderful conversation.